The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program. As we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, the author of a new book. It's so new, in fact, it comes out officially in March of 2022. And um, it... Uh, is is based on a true story. The book is called Red Burning Sky, a World War II novel inspired by the greatest aviation rescue in history. It's written by Tom Young, who joins me by phone. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Hello, Tom. Thanks so much. It's uh, an honor to get to talk to you and to your listeners. I certainly appreciate it. Well, let me let me ask about this because I, I was going to do a longer um, introduction and and talk about your military flying and the fact that you're an airline pilot now and that you spent ten years writing uh, for AP and um, I, w- I was going to try and roll all of that stuff in, um, but I think maybe the better way to approach it would be just to ask you which came first, your love of flying or writing. <laughs> well, that's that's a good question, and it, it's always been kind of uh, parallel. Uh, it's it's both things have interested me since I was a kid. I I grew up hearing my grandfather's stories of the Eighth Air Force in World War II, and that fascinated me and made me very interested in flying. But I've always been interested in writing, and in in my youthful ignorance, uh, when I was just starting college. I thought I had to choose one or the other <laughs> and and never look back. And so for a while, I pursued journalism and writing pretty single-mindedly, and hence the 10 years at the Associated Press. But then back when the first Gulf War kicked off and we were covering uh, Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield, we did a lot of human interest stories on people that I thought were pretty interesting. They were people who were in the Guard and Reserve, and they had a part-time military career, but they were also pursuing civilian careers. And one in particular uh, I could really relate to. It was a a fellow who was a television reporter in Louisiana, and he was also an A-10 attack jet pilot with either the Air Force Reserve or the Air National Guard. And I thought, well, that's a reporter who flies. Heck, if he can do that, I can do that too. So I joined (laughs) the Guard and became a C-130 flight engineer. Well, and and good for you, and thank you for your service. Um, the book, Red Burning Sky, is is a World War II story. Um, first of all, would you consider this a historic novel? And the other part of my question is, why 
why a World War II story and not stories from the time that you served in Afghanistan and in Iraq? Well, I would definitely call it uh, historical fiction. And I've always been fascinated by World War II, um, as I mentioned, beginning with my grandfather's stories. Uh, I have written novels set in more recent conflicts. My uh, my first few novels were set in uh, places like Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, the Horn of Africa, places where I'd been. And then uh, uh, later in my writing career, I, I shifted to historical fiction, and now Red Burning Sky is my second novel set in World War II. And, and let me ask you about this. There's been so much written about World War II and so many films that have been made. How do you find a story that is this dramatic, this compelling, that hasn't already been told to death? That's a great question, because uh, as, as you say, you would, you would think World War II has, has already been done to death, but so much happened over uh, so much of the world in a relatively short period of time that historians are still learning about it or still relearning things that had, have been almost lost to history. And the, uh, the subject of my novel, Red Burning Sky, is, is one of those things, something called Operation Halyard, which was the rescue of more than 500 uh, downed Allied flyers, mainly American flyers, uh, in Yugoslavia in 1944. And because of you know I have to I have to stop you there Tom because that is such an incredible number 500 downed pilots stranded in Yugoslavia that just seems hard to even imagine a lot of people have that reaction the first question I get often is wait a minute how did 500 down pilots and gunners and navigators uh, wind up in Yugoslavia to begin with. And, and the answer to that has uh, a lot to do with the target they were trying to hit. These were mainly bomber crews, crews of B-24 liberators and B-17 okay. flying fortresses. And they had been sent to hit the German-run oil refineries at Ploesti, Romania. World War II was the first truly mechanized war, and that's why the Allied command decided that one of the best ways to stop Hitler's mechanized army would be to starve it of fuel, so the refineries became a high-priority target. But for obvious reasons, they also became a heavily defended target, and a lot of bombers uh, over time went down uh, attempting to damage those refineries. And the reason these guys went down in Yugoslavia is the egress and ingress routes to and from the target went over Yugoslavia, and that's where a lot of them bailed out. It just seems like, uh, uh, first of all, a lot of people that didn't complete their mission, it just seems like a lot of airplanes and a lot of pilots. Definitely, um, definitely. And this wasn't just one big raid uh, at Ploesti. There was a very large initial raid. But what would happen is uh, these raids continued over time for months and months and months. So it's not like there were 500 people on the ground resulting from one raid. These were repeated raids that went on for uh, quite a long time. What would happen is that bombers would damage the refineries, and then the Germans would make repairs and put the refineries back online, and then the bombers would come back. And this cycle just kept repeating itself. And and how how much German presence was there that these guys didn't just walk out of there two or five at a time? 
Well, uh, Yugoslavia was occupied by the Germans, but I think in the rural areas it was occupied thinly. You know, of course, to control a, a country, you've got to concentrate your forces in the cities and then uh, cover the rest of the country uh, as, as conditions and uh, force levels permit. And the reason these guys were able to get rescued at all, the reason they were able to hide out with the villagers and, and so forth, was that they were in a rural area that was at least technically occupied by the Germans, but the German presence wasn't, um, uh, wasn't very intense. And that created an environment that allowed for what happened in Operation Halyard, which is basically the uh, uh, OSS, uh, forerunner of the CIA, parachuted agents into the region to organize an effort to have the down flyers and the villagers and local guerrillas build dirt airstrips by hand so that C-47s, military version of the DC-3, could come in and land and pick these guys up. And over a period of weeks and months, they shuttled them out to Italy. And that's how they got them out. And the environment was permissive enough that that could happen because it was in a rural area not thickly patrolled by Germans but discovery by Germans was was always a danger but it was um, sparsely enough guarded that as long as they stayed in those rural areas they were relatively safe yes yes usually and and how were these planes coming and going from there not picked up by by German uh, air forces um, and, and followed to their, their destinations? I think by this point in the war, this is uh, summer of 1944 right. going into uh, January and February of 45. I, by then, uh, the German military was in a bad enough way that uh, they had bigger problems than C-47s coming in and picking up uh, downed Allied flyers. I'm, I'm sure they would like to have uh, uh, attacked the, uh, the rescue aircraft uh, if, if they could have. It's, it's not clear to me whether they, were, uh, whether they were ever detected or not. I mean, the Germans did have uh, an early version of, uh, of radar back then, but they probably weren't concentrating that radar there. They were probably using it defensively uh, to protect their own cities, because by then they were uh, under attack from from Allied bombers. Um, sometimes these, these, these uh, C-47s would go in at night. Uh, there were other flights where they went in with fighter cover, so they used uh, different uh, techniques and tactics to, uh, to protect themselves as they flew in and out. How did this story end up on your radar? Well, I'd always been interested in uh, some of the, uh, well, as we say in the military, some of the secret squirrel missions of World War II, special <laughs> operations. And when I began researching uh, this stuff, of course, one of the first things that, that comes up in your research about, about this is the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is uh, the forerunner of the CIA. And when I started looking at various uh, OSS operations that I might want to write uh, about, this one particularly appealed to me because I'm an old airlifter myself. When I was in the military, I was a flight engineer on C-130s and C-5s. So I could really relate to uh, an airlift mission to rescue downed airmen. So this one really appealed to me.
Were there records kept? I mean, is that how you were able to start piecing this together? There were records kept, and there has been at least one good nonfiction book written about Operation Halyard. It's a book called The Forgotten 500 by Gregory Freeman. Uh, so this wasn't entirely lost to history. And also, uh, nowadays, there is a terrific organization called the Halyard Mission Foundation. And really? That's a, a group of uh, American and Serbian volunteers who are dedicated to memorializing this event and researching it. Uh, they're um, trying to find uh, participants, you know, for example, villagers who helped shelter these American airmen so long ago, of course, by now, any participant would be quite old, so in a lot of cases they're finding uh, descendants and family members, and, and when they can, they honor these people with plaques and certificates. Um, they're putting up historical markers in relevant locations, and they're uh, building uh, memorials at the sites of some of the dirt airstrips that were built for these rescue planes, just doing uh, a lot of great work. Uh, in fact, they're even setting up uh, educational stipends for kids in these villages that helped American flyers so long ago. Um, full disclosure, I'm not a member of the Halyard Mission Foundation. I'm just a fan of its work, but uh, who knows, maybe I'll get involved with them in the future. Well, as you were talking about that, I was wondering if some of the uh, descendants of, of these pilots that were rescued and some of the pilots that did the rescuing, um, if, if, their, if their offspring, their descendants... Um, had personal papers that have have come forward as you and others have have researched uh, this mission and others. They have, and I'm glad you asked me that question because just two days ago, I was uh, at a speaking engagement in Chicago, and two of the people at at the uh, book talk and book signing were uh, brother, brother and sister, and their father was one of the downed flyers rescued in Operation Halyard. And they showed me a photograph of a, um, a summary he had written of the damage his aircraft had, had sustained before he either bailed out or um, crash-landed. And it was a long list. That, that aircraft had all kinds of battle damage. I don't remember all of it off the top of my head, but it was really fascinating to get to talk to these folks and see this list of battle damage to this airplane uh, in, in this gentleman's own handwriting. It was quite fascinating. And, and that he survived it. Yes. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like there was no limping back to the base with that plane. That's true. That's true. Hey, Tom, I have to take a short break here, but I want to talk some more about uh, about your new book and about the research going into it. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some Absolutely. more? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Thank you. My guest is Tom Young. He is the author of a uh, new, exci exciting new thriller um, called Red Burning Sky, a World War II novel inspired by the greatest aviation rescue in history, and we're going to talk some more about that after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. But we'll be back with uh, Tom Young and more about Red Burning Sky. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. There's lots more straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My Robocall Crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of uh, a new book that comes out in uh, March of uh, 2022 called Red Burning Sky, a World War II novel inspired by the greatest aviation rescue in history, written by Tom Young, who joins me by phone. Hi, Tom. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem at all. Glad to be uh, talking with you. Um, we were talking a little bit about the research that went into this book, and I'm I'm curious because it's uh, talked about as as a um, compelling thriller. Um, how much of the thriller part is Tom Young, and how much was built into the story that you uncovered? Oh, I would say about half and half. Given that it was uh, the rescue of personnel in enemy-occupied territory, uh, that's a lot of inherent tension right there. But then because this is a fictionalized version, I uh, created uh, three fictional main characters, and there are various uh, scenes and chapters from the points of view of each of those three people, and those three characters are, are, are all my invention, uh, and, and I... I, I like to think that helps create some tension as well. Part of the story is told from the point of view of a fictional downed airman, a B-24 bombardier named Bill Bogdanovich, and he comes from a Serbian-American family. Uh, after World War I, his father immigrated from Yugoslavia to the U.S. The younger Bogdanovich was born in the U.S. He's never been in Yugoslavia before, and the father's nostalgia for the old country and the son's disdain for the old ways have always been a source of friction between them. Now the younger Bogdanovich has a B-24 blown out from under him, and he's dependent on people just like his father for his very survival. And he learns to appreciate why they are the way they are and, and why they do things the way they do. So that's his character arc. The second main character is one of the C-47 rescue pilots, uh, a fictional character named Drew Carlton. And Drew has a checkered past. He began his military career as a bomber pilot, but when his B-17 unit deployed to England and began hitting targets in uh, occupied uh, Europe, on three occasions he turned back from his target rather than dropping his bombs. And in each case, he did so for mechanical reasons, but maybe it was a gray area, whether it was really necessary to abort the mission. And that earned him the reputation of a coward. So he was sent back to the States and uh, assigned as an instructor stateside uh, because his, uh, his bosses decided he could best serve the war effort that way. So he sees volunteering for this very dangerous operation, Halyard, as a way to redeem himself, as a way to find his courage and get back in the fight. And then there's a third main character, a, uh, a very young uh, guerrilla, Serbian guerrilla, a teenager named Vaza. And believe it or not, that character is uh, inspired by someone I knew. But when I was in college, I took a wonderful course in Russian novels. Uh, and the professor was a gentleman named Dr. Vaza Mahalovich. And in his youth, in his teenage years, he had been a guerrilla fighter in Yugoslavia, and uh, he was a, a wonderful professor, and he had, you know, a classic American immigrant story, and uh, he became the inspiration for my fictional character named Vaza. 
So I, I hope all of those three characters with their various story arcs bring their own tension to the story as well. When you were researching this, where do you, where do you go to find out information? How much can you get from military sources? How do you get access to descendants of, of principles in the, uh, in the event itself? Um, and, and, uh, and what about the, these people in, the, in these rural areas of, uh, uh, or in this rural area of Yugoslavia that were helping to um, feed and, and protect and hide these American pilots? Um, how, how were you able to piece together what those little towns and farms might have been like? Well, I guess you could say that my research for this novel began before I even realized I was going to write it uh, <laughs> in the 90s when I was uh, flying with the uh, Air National Guard uh, during the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia. Um, I, I flew into that part of the world, and I could see the terrain. Of course, it was uh, it was 50 years after the events described in Red Burning Sky, but uh, in some of those rural areas, um, it, it's, it's, it's very little changed. So that gave me an idea of the lay of the land and uh, an appreciation for uh, how, how beautiful that terrain is. And then uh, also I gained a lot of good information just from reading the nonfiction book about Halyard, the Forgotten 500. Uh, the Halyard Mission Foundation's website, uh, halyardmission.org, had a lot of valuable information, and I, I spoke on the phone with the president of that organization. Uh, and then I did uh, a lot of the research that you can do online. I was, uh, for example, I was curious uh, to see what these specific villages look like now. If you uh, if, if if you read the Forgotten 500, you can. It, it's clear that th these villages were quite qu were quite remote. You can find some of them on Google Earth, and from the Google Earth pictures, you can see that they are still remote. Those, <laughs> uh, those places are still in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I was able to do that. And then uh, I suppose the easiest part was the technical re research. You know, I've never flown a C-47, but uh, there are wonderful training films from World War II that you can find online. Uh, someone, probably several someones, uh, has done us writers and historians a great favor by uploading to YouTube uh, a lot of training films from World War II. And those training films are terrific. They're as good as any training film I ever saw in the military, except they're in black and white and instead of in color. And you can find a film on anything, how to fly a C-47, how to fly a B-17, uh, how to... Uh, disassemble and clean an M1 rifle, you know, how they packed parachutes back in those days, uh, just all kinds of training films that are available to us. And, and I would think that your experience as a pilot would have made it uh, a little easier for you to understand and decipher and, and sort of imagine what flying those, uh, those planes would be like. Yes, that's true. Um, I, I don't have any experience uh, flying uh, antique warbirds, but having been in the military and having flown in hostile fire zones, I've, I've experienced some of the some of the things that that don't change. You know that that feeling when you see those uh, 
little lights coming at you and it's it's anti-aircraft fire i mean uh, that that emotion i'm sure is universal and and uh you know the 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 feeling of uh you know dear lord please don't let me screw up and let my buddies down you know that kind of thing those those things are timeless how did you um end up deciding um about this book but some of the other books that you've written too um how did you i mean you were working as an airline pilot how did how did you decide well i'm going to write books well i've always loved writing i it's 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 almost like a a beneficial addiction it's like i can't not write um you know a story idea comes to me and uh it it won't leave me alone until i start working on it um i think i've i think i've known i wanted to be a writer ever since i could read and uh my military experience gives me uh, plenty of uh, material. When I was in college, I studied uh, journalism, of course, but I also took a lot of creative writing courses, and I was always interested in fiction. But I never had a good idea for a novel that I could really sink my teeth into until after 9-11 and my unit got activated and deployed, and we started flying in and out of Afghanistan and then later in and out of Iraq. And those experiences gave me plenty of material. So I eventually wound up writing six novels that are set in present day or, or recent conflicts, uh, beginning with a novel set in Afghanistan called The Mullah's Storm. And uh, that turned into a six-book series. And then after that, I turned to historical fiction set in World War II. Now, this um, story... Um in in your book red burning sky is is referred to by a number of people who've read the book as um, being one of the most daring and successful rescue missions in war history not just world war ii but in all of war history um what makes it so the sheer size and volume and length of time it took to get all of those people out of there? Exactly. The sheer size of it. I mean, so often with these daring rescues in, in the military, it'll be one or two or three people, but this was more than 500 people. And that begs the question, why isn't it better known? I find that uh, even a lot of World War II buffs haven't heard of this one. But the reason for that is uh, not only during the war, but even after the war, it was kept under wraps for a long time because of uh, political and diplomatic sensitivities. Uh, at that time in Yugoslavia, you had a civil war going on in the middle of a world war. You had uh, non-communist guerrillas and communist-leaning guerrillas, and when they weren't fighting Germans, they were fighting each other. And I think part of the reason that this was kept under wraps even after the war is uh, the Soviets were our allies in fighting the Germans, and uh, uh, perhaps there was concern about ruffling feathers in Moscow. We didn't want to make a big deal about having uh, worked so closely with the non-communist guerrillas who were fighting the communist guerrillas. Um, there was also concern about ruffling feathers in London. Uh, the British were and are our closest allies, but during World War II, there were elements of the British government that favored 
working with the communist-leaning partisans rather than the, the non-communist Chetniks led by General Draza Mihaljevich, not because they had any sympathy for communism, but just because they felt that the partisans were more effective in fighting the Nazis. Further complicating the situation was the fate of the Chetnik guerrilla leader, General Draza Mihaljevich. Uh, his side lost the Yugoslav Civil War, and in 1946, Tito's government arrested him and put him on trial for high treason, high treason and war crimes. And in that same year, he was executed by firing squad. And uh, perhaps it was seen as an embarrassment in the U.S. that we could not apply diplomatic pressure and prevent that from happening uh, after General Mihaljevic had done so much to help our downed airmen. He was very instrumental in, in making Operation Halyard a success. So for, for all of these uh, diplomatic and political sensitivities. This was kept under wraps. Well, Tom, I would imagine that there might have been some um, uh, some security reasons for keeping it quiet, um, some of the strategies used. That's, that's true as well. Uh, part of the uh, reason for all the secrecy was, uh, well, probably the initial reason for all the secrecy was operational security. Uh, they didn't know how long they were going to have to keep going back and picking these guys up. And even even after they got them all out, you wouldn't want to do a very public victory dance uh, for fear that the Germans might retaliate uh, against the Yugoslav civilians who had helped us. But uh, here again, because of all of the political and diplomatic sensitivities, even after the Germans were defeated and the war was over, uh, this thing was still uh, kept under wraps. Well, it's it's a uh, it, it's a fascinating story to be sure. Uh, what's next for you, Tom? Probably another World War II novel. I uh, haven't started working on anything new yet, apart from just doing some research. I haven't actually started working on a new manuscript now, but I'm looking at more ideas for. Uh, stories inspired by uh, little-known corners of World War II history. There's, there's still yet a lot of material to work with there. Well, I just wondered, um, and and I've talked to other writers that have have had this happen. While you're researching one book, you stumble across <laughs> another really great story, and I just wondered if you're sitting on a couple of those. Yes, in fact, when I was studying this particular um, secret mission of World War II, I, I, I did run into others. Uh, one that particularly fascinates me is the, uh, the flights that the uh, Royal Air Force did to support the French resistance during World War II. You know, before Operation Overlord, before the Normandy invasion, when uh, all of Western Europe was, uh, was occupied by the Germans, there was a special unit of the uh, British Royal Air Force that did some really daring flights to support the French resistance. They had uh, small single-engine uh, aircraft called Lysanders that they would use to uh, fly into occupied France, and they would uh, arrange meetings with figures in the French resistance to resupply them. Uh, in some cases, they would even pick them up in these aircraft and put them in the back seat and fly them to Britain for consultations and then fly them back. Uh, just a, uh, a quite astounding um, airlift mission to support the French resistance carried out by the, uh, the British. And that, that fascinates, fascinates me as well. That, that may be the, 
subject of a future novel. Was that before the uh, before America entered the war? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and was, weren't there some American pilots that went over to fly with the RAF for some of those missions? Yes, there were. Prior to Pearl Harbor, there were Americans who volunteered to fly for the British. And uh, after the U.S. entered the war, uh, I think all of them, or nearly all of them, entered the American armed forces and began to fly for the U.S. But yes, there, was a, there were a number of... Uh, of pilots who volunteered to fly for the British prior to our entry in the war, and they have fascinating stories as well. I would think. Was Joe Kennedy Jr. one of those pilots? I honestly don't know. That's a good question. Uh, now I'm curious. I'll have to look Yeah, I, I, it just, something crossed my mind. I remember reading somewhere about some fairly high-profile American pilots that participated in, in some of those missions you, that you're talking about with the RAF before America, before Pearl Harbor and before America entered the war officially. Yes, as I understand it, they would work through uh, the Canadian government, you know, Canada being a Commonwealth nation, and uh, perhaps the first stop was the Canadian embassy here, and then you would go to Canada and begin the application process, and then they would eventually uh, wind up in, uh, in Britain and uh, flying in combat for the British. Well, I, I look forward to those future stories, Tom. Um, what is the writing process like for you? Do you start with a story, or did you come up with, with characters? Uh, now, this one, because it was based on a true story, but... Do you typically look for a story that you're going to rework to your own purpose and, and add characters to, or are, are there some that are, are, are you just completely uh, uh, creating your own world? Well, at least in terms of, his, of a historical novel, just coming up with the story concept is a two-stage process. You have to decide... Uh, what true life event will be the background for your story. And then you have to come up with your characters. And, and you have to, to decide what the personal conflict for uh, the character is going to be. So it's, you know, for example, the, the, the conflict can't just be that they're in a war and they want to survive the war, but then they also have to have a personal issue that they're facing. And you come up with, uh, I, I call that the, their internal conflict uh, that's going on at the same time as the external conflict of a war or whatever is going on. So you have to uh, wrap your mind around your character that way. And then once you establish what the conflict is going to be, that's, that's the hardest part. And from, from that point, uh, I'm, I'm one of the old-fashioned uh, writers who, who doesn't outline the way you know, we're all taught to in school, the way you're supposed to do it. I, I know writers who will outline uh, to a fairly well before they ever start writing any text, but I don't do that. I'll, I'll start with a good idea of my internal and external conflict, and I'll have a good idea of how the story's going to start. I'll have at least a vague idea of how the story's going to end, and I won't have any idea what happens in the middle. And then I literally just start making it up as I go along. Of course, if it's a historical novel, you've got historical guideposts that uh, uh, 
that helped lead you through the story. But in terms of the character's personal story, I, I literally just make it up as I go along. And when I first started writing this way, I, I, I thought I was crazy to do it that way, and to not outline the way we're all taught in school. But now that I've been doing this for a while and going to writers' conferences and workshops and so forth, I would unscientifically guesstimate that about 40% of the writers I run into write like that, just flying by the seat of their pants. And the other 60% uh, outline the way we're all taught we're supposed to. And, and spend a lot more time editing. <laughs> uh, that is true. If you don't outline, if you write by the seat of your pants, once in a while you can uh, go off on a tangent that uh, that you have to fix. That's just part of the writing yeah, I refer that, process. I refer to that as writing yourself into a corner. But <laughs> right, exactly. I've, but I've talked to a number of writers, Tom, that, that write the way that you do, and some of them have actually described it at times as feeling like the story kind of starts to tell itself. That's the truth. Uh, not to get too metaphysical here, but sometimes it almost feels like it's like it's not even mine, that it's coming from somewhere else. <laughs> the characters are telling you the story. <laughs> exactly. Well, some, there was some writer, I want to say it was William Faulkner, but don't hold me to that. I don't know if this was Faulkner or someone else, but I, I remember this being discussed in a, in a writer's workshop where there was a writer who said when he really got into the groove, he felt like he was just following his characters around and taking notes on what they were doing and saying. <laughs> That's great. I, you know, Tom, I feel like we're, we're almost out of time, and I, and I can't believe how fast the time has gone, and I, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. Thank you for asking. My website is TomYoungBooks.com, and I'm on Facebook uh, as Tom Young Author. And uh, my books are all available on uh, all of the online uh, book-selling platforms such as uh, Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and IndieBound and BookBub and so forth. So they're, they're all available that way. Well, and, of course, any, any bookstore uh, uh, can, uh, can either stock it or order it if they don't have it. So if you have a, a favorite bookstore, if there's an independent bookstore that you like, if they don't have it on the shelf, they can always order it. Well, Tom, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning, and good luck with the book, and keep up the good work. I, and I look forward to uh, your next book. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tom. It's certainly been a pleasure chatting with you. I do appreciate it. All right. Take care. Take care. Again, that was uh, Tom Young. He uh, is a pilot and author and uh, um has a new book. It's coming out in uh, March of 2022 called Red Burning Sky, a World War II novel inspired by the greatest uh, aviation rescue in history, written by Tom Young. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we're going to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com 
we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program. A little bit more. We'll be back with the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner program right after these brief announcements. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell, East Village Magazine, Flint Institute of Music, Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg, Flint Community Schools, MTA Flint, Flint Comics and Entertainment, Hamity Complete Food Center, The Flint River Watershed Coalition, WH Wisecarver, The Genesee County Road Commission, Lone Museum Auto Fair, Thomas Appliance, The Genesee Health Plan, Whiplet Technology, Mark Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. It's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. 
Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company, and then ask for the gift card number over the phone. Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov AG for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. In these days of the Cold War, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, has become one of our most valuable tools. However, many Americans have complained that too much of the CIA's activities have been kept secret. Tonight, as a public service, we are happy to be able to present the secret head of the CIA who will answer all of your questions. To maintain the secrecy of his identity, he will be wearing a mask. How do you, how do you do, sir? My name, Jose Jimena. <laughs> sir, you, you just told your name. What are you going to do now? <laughs> What are you going to do now? Well, I guess I'll just take off the mask. But first, I'd like to say something. What? Trick or treat. <laughs> sir, as a... Uh, oh, boy, sir. they're going to really kid me about that back at the office. I don't sir, First sir. time I had this mask off. Do I need to shave up here? No, no, no. No. It has been said that spies work for the highest bidder. Would you tell me if that's true? What's it worth to you? I, uh, I understand that uh, when you're a spy, you use very tricky devices. Is that true? You understand that when you're a spy, you use tricky devices. Well, you see this cigarette that I'm smoking? Uh-huh. You see that? Yes. That's really a gun. <laughs> Come on now, you can't tell me that cigarette is a gun. Oh, yeah? How would you like a shot in the mouth? <laughs> we also, among other things, use very... Cleverly concealed cameras. Oh, really? Sure. See this front tooth here? <laughs> see that? Yes, I that's, see. That's not really a tooth. That's a miniature camera. How does it work? Just press my nose. <laughs> and, and that'll take a picture? No, I just like people to press my nose. <laughs> Actually, uh, my nose is a, a shortwave radio. <laughs> You work the camera by pulling in my left ear. What happens when you pull on your right ear? That turns on my nose. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's absolutely... Yeah, I think it's running now. <laughs> you know? That's amazing, a camera in your tooth. Uh-huh. I can't even see the little hole. Well, that's because I was in the right half of the class. <laughs> 
How did you get an idea like that, having a camera in your tooth? Well, I had this film on my teeth. I thought, why let it go to waste? You know, Sir, I've heard that they do terrible things to gain information from captured spies. Oh, boy. You heard about that, huh? Yes. I tell you, they do. Oh. Do you know one time? They captured me, and they took these bamboo things, they put them underneath my fingernails, and they lit fire to them. They were burning things under my fingernails. <laughs> and then they came and they hit me on the shoulders very hard, right there with the bony part where it really could hurt. <laughs> and then they punched me in the nose, and they punched me in the stomach. And then they took these pair of pliers, and they squeezed me all over the place. <laughs> and then they started to torture me. Did you talk? No, I was too busy screaming. <laughs> you must have had some uh, thrilling experiences. Oh, I can think of one now. You know, one time I was on a plane, you know, and I had these form documents, and I saw on the same plane, right down just a couple of seats from me, still in first class. Yes. Oh. Or a couple of foreign power people, you see? Yes. They were there. Yes. So I took these foreign documents and I went into the laboratory. But when I came out, they caught me with the documents. Well, why didn't you get rid of them? Well, there was a sign that says, don't throw any foreign articles into the laboratory. <laughs> Sir, who would you say was the greatest spy in history? The greatest spy in history was Ludwig van Beethoven. I didn't know Beethoven was a spy. You see how great he was? As long as we have you here in front of these microphones, uh, would it uh, be all right with you if some of the people here in the audience ask you some questions uh, pertaining to the CIA? Would you answer all of their questions? Yes, I would answer all of them. Oh, that's I'd very good. Very happy. Would, would you please like uh, feel free to ask any questions you have? How can we get a job at the CIA? You have any experience as a spy? <laughs> Not yet. Are you married? <laughs> yes. You've had experience. <laughs> If you are caught behind enemy lines, all you have to do is give the name, rank, and serial number of every soldier in the United States Army, where they are billeted, and, and how many bullets they have. Otherwise, they'll give you such a clock, you won't even know. Yes. That it's still going on. <laughs> I mean, did you hear anything whistling, duck? Does the CIA have a theme song? Excuse me? Does the CIA have a theme song? Yes. It's over where? <laughs> Here you go. How many copies would you like? Well, sir, in conclusion, uh, as a spy, uh, do you have a code? No, it just sounds like that because I got this radio in my nose. <laughs>
this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. have been nothing if not vague well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell there is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the lesson to July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. From the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to uh, all of my guests on the show today, starting with Tom Young, who was on this uh, last hour talking about his book coming out in March of 2022 called Red Burning Sky, a World War II novel inspired by the greatest aviation rescue in history. also want to say thanks to... Um Judith Newman, who joined me during the uh, middle of our three-hour tour, um, talking about uh, sexual prejudice against people with disabilities. And uh, who did we start out with this morning? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an encore with uh, Ilya Yablokov, um, talking about Russian conspiracy theories. Anyway... That's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, uh, sending me down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program, and I hope you will be too. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.